Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Welcome to see you today. Those of you who are new here, my name is Matthew, and uh, I'm going to be speaking from the Bible this morning. Uh, for those of you who are new and not familiar with how we do things at Gateway, we actually got two congregations that meet on a Sunday. We've got another one down at Ashley Road. So once I've finished speaking here, I shoot out the door and um, go down to the other one. So if you see me leave, that's why I'm going. I'm not just going home for a second breakfast, but I'm going off to uh, out, not just for a second breakfast, but going down to Ashley Road. So sadly, I'll miss the, miss the baptisms, which is a shame. But um, This morning, we're carrying on. We're doing a five-week series where we're, we're linking to the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, 500 years ago, October the 17th, uh, 1517, Martin Luther nailed a document onto the door of Wittenberg Castle Church, which sparked a, a revolution, a reformation in Europe and the world, and we're tying into that 500-year anniversary, and we're, and we're doing this around five statements that came out of the Reformation, five statements of truth. And there's this little book, if you weren't here last week, we advertised this last week, they're over on the table. Welcome to take one of these, which explains something of the, the history of the Reformation and what we're talking about over these five weeks. Really good, easy to read, nicely produced little book. We also have, for those of you who like a little wall chart, also on the desk where you can get these in life groups this week, these, this little five solars wall chart, which explains the five statements we're looking at. So you might want to get one of those and stick it on your fridge or something while we're doing... I love a nice chart. That made me quite happy when I found those. So get one of those if you'd like, if you like, like a chart. Um, last week we were looking at the theme of Scripture, Scripture alone, and we're talking about the significance of God's words, this book, the Bible, and how there, as we understand it, there's no human authority that can sit over this because we believe this isn't just writing on a page, but somehow really is the words of God, inspired by God, breathed by God, through human beings, but God's word, which has been given to us, and this is, our, this is our authority as Christians, this is our ultimate authority, this is where we understand God speaks to us. And that doesn't mean we disregard uh, history or theology or philosophy, but all those things must sit underneath God's word. When you put them above God's word, then you start to get things into trouble. And uh, so we want to talk about the authority of scripture. This is God's word. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at the theme of Christ alone. And uh, the claim I want to bring to you this morning is that Christ alone can meet our deepest needs. Christ alone can meet our deepest needs. And for those of us in this room who have put our faith in Jesus, I'm hoping this morning would be a reminder to us of that, that it's Christ alone who meets our deepest needs. I know myself, often through the week, just with stuff that's happening, I, there's all kinds of other things. I think I need that or I want that, and those things seem to become very important. And I and we need to be reminded that actually what we need first and foremost is Jesus Christ, him alone. He is the way to salvation. We need him. So I'm hoping to remind us who know Jesus of that truth. And for those of you who haven't yet put your faith in Jesus, um, I'd, I'd extend an invitation to you. This is what we want you to think about this morning and as we lead up, lead up to baptisms, that in your search for the things that you want and need in life, actually what you need more than anything else, this is the claim, is Christ alone. That Jesus actually is the end of your searching. He's the answer to your longings. On Monday, Monday's uh, my, my day off, on Monday last week, Grace and I were down in Bournemouth and we went for a coffee in Waterstone's bookshop 
And uh, in the uh, coffee bar in Waterstones, there's lots of books, because there's a bookshop, and all the books up in the coffee shop, are, they're, all, they're all cookery books. And I just took a quick picture of a very small section. There are scores and scores of cookery books up in Waterstones. And, and I was looking at them, Grace and I were talking about it, and uh, thinking, actually, what does this represent? That actually there's something quite powerful in terms of what the cookery section at Waterstones Coffee Shop represents about our culture. Um, first thing, one thing it shows is a kind of anxiety, that there's an anxiety about what we eat and what that produces in us. A lot of these books, uh, an awful lot of them actually, were not just cookbooks, but they're kind of health-related. They're diet books, they're books which are, if you eat this way, then you'll lose this much weight, and if you eat this kind of food, then you'll be a somehow a better person, you'll feel better about yourself and you'll be healthier than you are and you'll be, just be different from how you are. And, and there's a, a kind of anxiety actually displayed in some of these books. So we're anxious about the stuff that we eat and, the, and our health and how we look and all that kind of stuff. There's also a, a desire which is kind of displayed through these books. There's, there's a desire to, to be healthy but also to feel good. So there's a kind of a a physical health thing, but also a psychological thing. I want to feel good about myself, and food in some way can help me to do that, either because it's particularly tasty or because it's particularly virtuous in some way. Uh, and also a desire to be creative, that rather than just churning out the same old beans on toast every night, there's, let's do something which is a bit more creative. There's that kind of desire expressed in, the, in these books. And also then the desire for transformation, because so many of them are about are saying, at the moment you're here, but if you follow this recipe book, if you follow this diet, you can be here. You can be transformed, you can be different, you can be a different kind of person, you can feel healthier and you can feel better about yourself and you can look more impressive to other people because of your culinary skills and your creativity and because of how you look and how you feel. And you will be different because of what this book tells you. And uh, as I sat there drinking my milky coffee and eating a piece of chocolate cake, uh, <laughs> I thought this was a fascinating kind of glimpse into how people think. That there is an external, there's always an external standard which is calling us to behave in a certain way, live up to certain expectations. And in our society where we have no shortage of food, bizarrely food has become one of the things which actually sets the standard in terms of you should be eating this kind of thing and you should be living this kind of way and you should be following this kind of diet and you shouldn't be eating that kind of thing, you should be doing this. There's a standard which is kind of imposed upon us and displayed through some of these books. But there's also an internal need, there's something in us which responds to that. That's why Waterstones has these books in a prominent position in the coffee shop because millions and millions of us buy these books because we think they offer us something of transformations. So there's something in us which responds to this external standard. We uh, think we're our own lords, that we're free independent spirits in charge of our own feelings and emotions and actions, but there are always standards being imposed upon us to which we in some way seek to conform. And even the most free-spirited person is still conforming to a standard. The person who seems to be the most free-spirited, devil-may-care person actually is conforming to an image of what a free-spirited, devil-may-care person is meant to look like. There's always a standard which we conform to. And as I sat there drinking my coffee and eating my piece of chocolate cake and looking at these books, it made me think about what we're looking at in this series. It made me think about some biblical words, some theological words. Actually, these books and what they represent are evidence 
of our need for justification. In other words, what this reveals is we're always looking for a sense of validation. Am I valid? Is the way that I live valid? Do others consider my life valid? Am I authentic? There's that great search for authenticity in our society. How do you live authentically? There's just, that's in us as human beings. We want to be justified. And another biblical word, another theological word, these books and what they represent are evidence of our need for assurance, which is really about the question, am I loved? Am I loved? Maybe if I follow this kind of diet, I'll be loved more because I will feel better and look better and people will admire me and that means I'll be loved more. And so these, these, this, these theological needs we have of justification and assurance come out all the time. And this isn't just an issue of the books that are sold in the coffee shop at Waterstones in Bournemouth. This, these are the questions that were the issue of the Reformation. Justification and assurance. How can I get right? And how can I ever know that I'm right enough? And who has authority to proclaim me to be right and right enough? And in the era of the Reformation, 500 years ago, the 16th century, there was a religious system which sought to answer those questions. And the way that system answered the question was to say, no, you're not right, but you can become right or more right if you follow these particular procedures. If you go to the priest and you confess your sins and you make a penance and then you die and then you go to purgatory and for hundreds of years you're tortured in purgatory, then at last you might be right enough to achieve the standards which we all know we're meant to achieve. And who has the authority? Well, in the end, the church, the Pope, is the one who has authority to structure all that and determine that. And what the Reformation did was just to punch a hole right through that way of thinking. Reformation is actually about human liberty. It's about freedom. That's why this little book is called Freedom Movement. That's what the Reformation was about. It was about discovering things which brought men and women into a sense of liberty and freedom again. Reformation wasn't just about a reordering of how religion is organized. It's not just about changing one system of how church is done to a different system of how church is done. No, it was the recovery of the gospel message that deals with the questions and longings of our hearts. It's about what love is and how you receive that love and how you can know that that love won't abandon you. And the answer to those questions is Christ, Christ alone. Let's uh, turn to the scripture. We're going to be looking in Paul's letter to the Romans. It's on page 1130 in the Bibles and the pockets in your chairs. Romans chapter 3, you're going to read verses 21 to 26. And... Uh, as I read this, let's allow Scripture, let's believe Scripture to be powerful, that it is God's Word. Maybe you don't believe that yet, but just try it as an experiment. As I read, imagine what it might be, what this might mean for you if this actually is the Word of God. Let's read. Verse 21 of Romans chapter 3. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. 
There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by the grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Jesus, I pray that this morning we would see afresh, or maybe for the first time, what it is to have faith in you, and what it means to be declared righteous in your sight, what it means to be justified by you. I pray that we would see, Jesus, what it is to be loved, to receive your love, how that happens, and how we know that your love will never abandon us. I pray this morning... Jesus Christ, we would know that salvation is found in you alone. Amen. What the Apostle Paul says here to the church in Rome is that the righteousness of God has been made known. The righteousness of God has been known. There is a standard, and it is an absolute standard. The standard of God's righteousness, his total, complete, completely different completely perfect holiness and purity. That is the standard of righteousness which is set in the universe. And the fact that God is entirely holy, entirely righteous, and entirely pure is the explanation for our psychological need to be justified. It explains why we have this desire to be found right. It's because, as the Bible tells us, we men and women are made in the image of God. Genesis 1.27, so God created them in his image. In his image, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We are made in the image of God to somehow be like God. And because God has his standard of righteousness, that just is in us that we desire righteousness as well. We want it. We want to share in it. And the dilemma of the Reformation, the dilemma of Luther, who was the fuse really which lit the touch paper of what happened in the Reformation. The the dilemma for Luther was that he saw the righteousness of God as a standard which crushed him. He understood the complete otherness of God, God's ultimate gold standard, his completely different standard from human the human standard, and he, he felt that as a weight which crushed him. Until through reading scripture, he realized that actually the righteousness of God isn't a standard which crushes us, but is a gift which God gives to us to live by. He was suddenly liberated when he saw this, not as a standard to crush him, but a gift to live by. And the thing is that without receiving this gift of knowing what it is to receive the righteousness of God, we get stuck on the treadmill of self-justification. We're always trying to justify ourselves. This is, what, this is how Luther lived before he saw the truth. He was living on this treadmill of trying to make himself right enough, good enough to come up to the standard of God and finding that he just failed and failed and failed. He was stuck on this brutal treadmill. And, and we get stuck in that kind of treadmill as well. In, a, in the corrupt religious system of the 16th century, it was a religious treadmill you got stuck on. In our day, the treadmill often will look different, but there are ways in which we try to find security, ways in which we try to find justification, the ways in which we try and prove ourselves right. And it becomes a brutal treadmill which we can never get off. 
Many of us might feel it in relation to our work. You might work really hard during the week, but there's always that nagging sense, have I worked hard enough? Have I done enough? What is left is, should I stay longer in the office, the ceiling? Do I need to go back at the weekend? There always seems to be more to be done. There's always this treadmill of stuff, and you can have this inner psychological sense of, I haven't done quite enough, even if objectively you actually have, because there's something in the human nature, human soul, human heart, which has this sense of, I need to be right. And how do you ever know that you've done enough to be right? How do you know that your rightness is ever right enough? We want to justify ourselves. We want to be found in the right. We want to know assurance. We want to know, yes, you have done enough. You are right enough. And that impulse originates in our origin in God, that we're made in his image. All our human striving is in some way an attempt to reach God. Lots of people wouldn't recognize that, would maybe deny it outright, but all our striving, all our trying to achieve, actually is our desire to reach God. And the word of God, the scripture, shows us the solution to that treadmill. The solution is this, the saving righteousness of God obtained through faith in Jesus Christ. There's no other mechanism, there's no other way in which you can be made right. It is by Christ alone. All other attempts, all other human attempts fall short. That's what he says here. Everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. There's no human achievement, no human effort, no human standard that can lift us to God's standard. It is like being told, go and swim the Atlantic. And it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter if you can't swim a stroke or if you're Michael Phelps, you are still going to drown. The what seems like an absolute difference between my ability to swim and Michael Phelps' ability to swim is nothing in compared to the greatness of the Atlantic. We are both going to drown. And that's like the human effort. The human effort to be right is always, no matter how hard you try, you're never going to make it. You're always going to fall short. And what the Word of God says, it is by faith in Jesus, by God's grace, that we can receive the righteousness of God. That rather than striving for a standard we can never possibly hope to reach, God gives us his righteousness, declares us to be justified in his sight. And that is accomplished because of what happens at the cross of Jesus Christ. The scripture says here that there's this redemption that has come as redeeming that has happened because of the Christ the cross of Christ. Redemption means that a price has been paid. And, you know, when something's wrong, when something's been done wrong, there's always a price that has to be paid. If, if something has been done to you which is wrong, and you decide, well, actually, you're going to, rather than allowing that thing to eat you up with bitterness and unforgiveness, you're going to forgive and you're going to move on and you're going to get past it. That's the costly thing to do. It costs you to do that. If you've done something wrong to somebody else and you decide, I'm going to put that right, well, that's a costly thing as well because you have to admit that you're wrong and you have to do something to put it right. Sin always costs something to be put right. And what the Bible tells us is that Jesus has paid that cost. That at the cross, he was the one who paid for our gap between us and God, that unbridgeable divide between us and God. Jesus closed it by his death on the cross. We've been redeemed. Redemption's a powerful 
Bible word, the greatest picture of, of redemption in the Bible, the story it's often told is a story of God taking his people, Israel, out of slavery from Egypt and bringing them into freedom in the promised land. It's a picture of redemption. They were redeemed out of slavery and brought into life. And that's what happens to us when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. We're redeemed. We're brought out of slavery to always striving to achieve a standard we can't possibly hope to reach and we're brought into the liberty and the freedom of righteousness in God. Jesus has met the standards. And we share in what he has done. And this means that Christ alone gives us assurance of faith. In the religious system of Luther's day, you could never really know whether you were in or whether you were out. You could never know whether you were right enough, good enough, or whether you weren't quite good enough. There's a kind of a spiritual okey-cokey going on that you would pay your penance, you'd say your prayers, you'd go and see the priest and it's like a, the left foot goes in and then you do something the next day which you knew you shouldn't and the left foot comes out and am I ever in or ever, am I ever out? It's the okey-cokey of spiritual life. And in our day, we don't have the same religious framework, but we still feel the same things. When have you done enough? When are you good enough? Have you actually worked as hard as you should have done? Have you achieved what you should have done in the office? Have you prepared the perfect meals which your family deserve? Have you eaten healthily enough to look like you should and feel like you should? How do you know you've ever done enough? When are you good enough? And coming to Christ in faith changes all that. Changes that. Because faith in Jesus Christ is not in or out. It's not sometimes in, sometimes out, okey-cokey. It's either in or out. It's binary. It's one or the other. You're either justified or you're not. If you are justified, if you've come to Christ in faith, there's no in and out anymore. There's no okey-cokey. You're just, you're just in. This is the free justification of grace that we receive the righteousness of Christ. His standard now becomes our standard. This is what we call union with Christ. Let's look at a couple of other scriptures that describe this. In Galatians chapter 2, it says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. What does that mean? What, it, what do you mean I no longer live? What, what it means is that my old self, the old standard-seeking self, has been killed with Jesus on the cross, and now Christ is alive, and Christ lives in me, which means that his righteousness is mine, that I don't have to seek after trying to justify myself. He is he's the one who, is, who has justified me because I receive his righteousness. Romans 6, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? This is a great verse for a baptismal Sunday. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ has, was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. What's that saying? What's that saying is that when you put your faith in Jesus and that's demonstrated through your baptism as Adora and Josie and Paul and Jill are about to do, when you do that, you, you are signifying what has happened to you spiritually that you died, your old self-justifying self has died and you've been raised to new life in Jesus Christ. You, you've been transformed, that you're united with Christ, that 
The standard has been met by him. You, you don't need to worry now about whether you're, a love, you're loved or how you can receive love or how you'll know that you'll continue to get love because those things are guaranteed for you by the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Faith in Jesus changes everything. Union with Christ changes everything. The thing is, though, that you can come to faith in Jesus, but you can still sometimes live like Luther did before he saw the truth of what justification means. You can still live like, as if it's the spiritual okie-cokie, in and out, in and out. How am I doing? How am I feeling? And what we need to do is to understand the difference between union and communion. Union and communion. Union is about our status. If you have come in faith to Jesus, you have died with Christ, you've been raised a new life with Christ, and you are sharing in Christ's righteousness. Christ alone. The question becomes not how righteous am I, how well am I doing, how good am I, how right am I. The question becomes how righteous is Jesus Christ? How well is he doing? How good is he? That becomes a question. And when we believe that Jesus is ultimately good and completely always in the right, that his standard is perfect, and when we understand that we, by faith, are united with him, well, there can be no more in and out, no more spiritual okie-cokie. It's not how am I doing, it's how is Jesus doing. Pressure's not on me, it's all upon him, and he's taken all the pressure. That's union. Communion is more subjective. Communion is our awareness of how close we're feeling to God. And that does fluctuate. That, like any relationship, how you feel fluctuates. There are days, times when I feel extraordinarily close to God, kind of emotionally. And there are other times when not so much. That's communion. But union is the foundation of communion. That's the way it starts. You're united with Christ... And your relationship with him, how you feel, flows out of that. It's a bit like what we're doing today, that baptism comes first. Baptism is about union. The, the four getting baptized today, what they're displaying, what they're representing, demonstrating, is that they are now united with Christ. This is union with Christ. Dying with Christ and being raised to new life in Christ. Now united with Christ. That's where it begins. And then most Sundays, we're not today here, but most Sundays we take communion. We take the Lord's Supper. We take the bread and the wine. And that is our regular statement of faith in our ongoing relationship with Jesus and his power at work in our lives. Now the thing is, if you put communion first, how am I feeling about my relationship with God? You're always going to be on this treadmill again. You're going to get caught back on that treadmill. It becomes about you rather than about Jesus. And so where we need to start, what we need to remind ourselves of every day is our union with Christ, and that brings us into freedom. Because Jesus has met the standard, and in him we have met the standard. In him we're declared righteous, justified, and in him we find love. This is what Martin Luther said about this. Faith must be taught correctly. Namely, that if, that by it you are so cemented to Christ that he and you are as one person which cannot be separated but remains attached to him forever and declares, I am as Christ. 
And Christ in turn says, I am as that sinner who is attached to me and I to him. For by faith we are joined together into one flesh and one bone. Thus Ephesians 5.30 says, We are members of the body of Christ, of his flesh and of his bones, in such a way that this faith couples Christ and me more intimately than a husband is coupled to his wife. If you have come in faith to Jesus Christ, you are cemented to him. You're in union with him. And when we grasp this truth by faith, it gets us off this terrible treadmill of always wondering, have I done enough? Am I right enough? Am I good enough? Have I achieved enough? It, it frees us from our posturing. We spend so much time posturing, trying to present an image of ourselves. And when you understand that you're united with Christ and he's met the standard, but you're, you're, you don't need to posture anymore. You've set free, and so, for so many people, actually, this would be the greatest liberation they could experience, to not to have to worry about presenting this image of yourself. Not always having to try and spin things, adapt your Facebook profile, whatever it might be, so you look the best. Not having all the right cookery books on your shelf so people come in and think, oh, this is a very creative, very health-conscious... No, you're freed from all that stuff because Jesus is the standard. And in him, you meet the state. You're freed from your posturing. We're also freed from our insecurity. Am I good enough? Am I right enough? Actually, in myself, the answer is always no. 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 But in Christ, the answer is yes. 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 And that is fuel for joy. That is why we Christians are meant to be joyful. That's why we, our praise here is exuberant. Because... We see what it means to be united with Christ and to receive his righteousness and his justification to be declared blameless in his sight and to receive his love. During the Reformation, there were a whole number of what are called catechisms written, which were a series of questions and answers to help people understand their faith more. And one of the most famous ones and one of the most beautiful ones is the Heidelberg Catechism, of which the first question is particularly famous. When you came in, you should have got one of these cards which has the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. Did everybody get one of those? Or wave it if you got it. Let's read this together. It says this, What is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Saviour, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Hallelujah. Last week, some people were asking me after I spoke about Scripture alone, how do I read the Bible? Help me. It's part of the reason why I've done this. This has got Scripture references which support the statements of this answer. If you'd like to get deeper into the Bible this week, what I'd encourage you to do is to take this and to, over the next seven days, meditate on this response, this answer. What is my only comfort in life and death? Read the Scriptures there. Let them get into your soul. 
feel the richness of them. We want to know what love is as human beings. And what love is this? Is is this? It is Christ on the cross. You want to know what God is like? What does God look like? God looks like Jesus Christ hanging on the cross, praying, Father, forgive them. That's how you can know love. Jesus gave himself for you. How can I receive that love? By faith. It just takes an act of faith of saying, Jesus, yes, I believe, I receive. How can I know that love won't abandon me? How can I know? All other loves, so many loves seem temporary and fragile and contingent and flexible. How can I know the love of God won't abandon me? Because if you put your faith in Jesus, you are cemented to Jesus Christ. He will never leave you. He will never abandon you. Christ alone. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This is our hope. This is the truth in which we stand, that Christ is the answer to our longings. And Christ is the answer for our need. Christ is the one who loves us with a love that never fails and a love that never ends. Amen.